Hey, welcome everyone to our podcast series in honor of Crane's 80th anniversary. I'm Sandy Zare, and with me to co-host is... Ben Harkness. Ben Harkness, welcome. So hey, listen, this is our first of four podcasts. It's part of a broader celebration in honor of our heritage. We're, uh, we're gonna also feature social media posts, and you've probably seen some of those throughout, the historical topics and some pictures. We're only, only gonna hit a lot of the wave tops during these podcasts. We'll give you some personal perspectives and, and try to have a little fun along the way. Um, you know, if you're interested as well in learning more in depth about these topics, by the way, I wanted to point out that the Indiana Historical Society has a Crane archive. It's on their website at indianahistory.org forward slash digital forward slash collection forward slash crane. What's great about that is there are thousands of articles, literally. Uh, and the site includes all of the old bursts and duds newsletters, as well as uh, Commodore publications, a lot of imagery of civilians, some of the construction that happened on the center and some news articles uh, that really talk about the technical uh, evolution of Crane over the last 80 years. So a lot of interesting stuff. And by the way, all of that is in the public domain and it's permissible to be shared. So Ben, we talk about this 80th anniversary as being our four score anniversary. That really is, is attributed to you. You kind of came up with that phrase. Tell, <laughs> tell me more about that. Yeah, that's interesting, Sammy. You know, earlier this year, we had our micro, microelectronics integrity meeting up right. at uh, Indianapolis. And as um, uh, Dr. Lewis was preparing uh, before the event to uh, uh, speak a little bit uh, about the importance of microelectronics, uh, one of our branch managers made a comment to him, uh, to her, Four score and seven years ago, and right. you know, reference to Abraham Lincoln, and uh, I, I had just been thinking about the history of Crane and coming up on the 80-year uh, mark for this organization, and I thought to myself, hmm, four score, wow, we could maybe divide that up into 20-year segments and maybe have yeah. a have some discussion. So that's kind of the initial thought, and I think I even bounced that off right. of you up there in Indianapolis, right. and and it's kind of taken off from there. So yeah, uh, glad to be uh, here with you today, Sandy. Excellent, so today, speaking of scores, we're gonna talk about the first score. So think about the score from 1941 to 1961, and we're, again, we're gonna cover some of the highlights and talk about that. This, this era has been characterized by Tony Haig, who is a former Crane employee and a, and a great Crane historian, as the produce and pass the ammunition phase of our history. And so I wanted to start by just talking about why in the world did, did the Navy choose Southern Indiana in the first place to, to locate a Navy base? I mean, you got landlocked Indiana, right? So what happened? And so from doing some examination, we found FDR's New Deal as part of the Great Depression and uh, in, in sort of the recovery plan ended up with 36,000 acres of land acquired. Uh, and it was originally going to be a state park. Um, but uh, when the DOD started to look at this, Ben, it was a location strategically away from the coastline, right? Yeah, exactly. They needed to be away from uh, really the range of any enemy bombers uh, for any of our major ammunition storage facilities. And uh, thus, Crane was one of, I think, four or five sites that were stood up in, uh, inland away from the coastline. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of stood up, December 1st, 1941 was the date that the Naval Ammunition Depot Burn City was commissioned. And the idea again was just to produce, test, and store ordnance. Uh, later, the name was changed to Crane. That happened on the, on the 1st of May in 1943. It was named in, in, in memory of Commodore William Crane. And Ben, you were just checking out his uh, statue in front of Building One this morning. Oh, it's the first time I really looked at that, Sandy. I was walking in this morning knowing we were getting ready to do this, and I thought, I'm gonna just stop and, and pause and look at that. And 
just the artwork, the, the fine details that are in that statue, you know, I was always seeing it from a distance and, and saw the, the image and the bust of, uh, of Commodore Crane. But when I, when I got closer to it and looked, there's, there's uh, carvings of eagles in that and some different other figures and figurines as well. And I thought, my goodness, you know, all done by hand. Yeah. Uh, it had to be. And I didn't have the history behind that, but you shared with me this morning that uh, you had a little history on that. I, I, indeed, yeah, I lost the name of the, uh, the, name of the gentleman, but it was an, an Italian uh, immigrant who was a stone carver, stone cutter from the Bedford area, Bedford Bloomington area. Uh, who was commissioned to, to make that statue of Commodore Crane uh, at the time. So just an interesting, interesting story there. Commodore Crane was, uh, was the first chief of Navy's Bureau of Ordnance as well. And so let's talk a little bit about the workforce at that time, because here you are standing up a brand new Navy ammunition depot in Southern Indiana. And, and so you don't have a workforce, experienced workforce who knows much about producing, testing, and storing ammo necessarily in this area. So. Interesting, I found one of the things they did is they advertised for young men, boys, if you will, as young as 16, and women to come work. And at the time, it would not be politically correct to do this now, but at that time, they, they asked for bows and wows. So the bows were boy ordnance workers, and the wows were women ordnance workers. And so that was how they first tried to try to stand up the organization. And so uh, as as we do today, even you know this, this area really responded responded to that, and and uh, so you know really interesting stuff. Yeah, Ben. Yeah, I, you know Sandy, this was uh, I was looking through one of the history books that a good friend had given me, a family friend, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a future segment. But um, it, it it indicated that you know there was so much demand for ordnance back then that mm -hmm. that we really had trouble. The base had trouble meeting that demand signal, and it there was there was one point that I was reading where it said actually on the weekends they were busing students in from Indiana University to help meet the labor shortage. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah, it was. And, you know, in 1943, it indicates that uh, about 6,000 civilian employees were working at non-construction jobs at Crane. And there were a lot of construction jobs going on. And I remember hearing stories when I came on here about one of our larger uh, buildings being a continuously poured building, one of the largest mm. on the center that right. they just had to run. Uh, uh, cement trucks in on a continual basis, 24/7, just to pour wow. that concrete, to pour that building, and and so uh, you know the non-construction jobs uh, were 6,000, and there were many construction jobs as well. And then in 1944, they actually had to bring a naval battalion in of 1,300 to also uh, be able to help uh, uh, shore up uh, the labor shortage. I think the peak that I saw was about 10,300 or so in 1945 and about 2,000 military personnel. And uh, that's just an amazing number of people that were, that were here at that time supporting the war effort. Indeed, you know, I read an account from Ralph Graves, who was a public works inspection foreman at the time, uh, Michigan State engineering grad. Uh, and he also mentioned it was 10,000 plus in around 1944 at the peak of activity. So there, there's a couple of different sources that, that corresponded. A lot of people in the area, but again, having little or no experience, that, Hoosiers found a way to get the job done and, and support the country and, and, and deliver a variety of really important ordinance items. Um, and again, I think that just, without sounding too cheesy, Ben, I mean, that, that's that patriotism and that kind of get it done attitude. It's really a part of the Crane culture, maybe then as well as through the ages, frankly. I would, I would submit that that's the part of the Crane culture now. 
So as, as the organization grew, in 1945, a pyrotechnics plant was stood up and to make a lot of different, a, a variety of, of major and, and, and medium caliber projectiles. And, you know, it became, Crane became at that time the place for the Navy for illuminating projectiles and, and, and parachute flares. And so really equipping uh, both the Atlantic and Pacific fleets, really largest, best equipped plan of its time. Um, but what's interesting about that, so if you think about the production, Ben, it was, it was all by hand, right? Hoosiers had to adapt had to adapt to be able to, to, do, to do this by hand. There were a lot of things that went on, Ben. I don't know, maybe you've got some statistics there uh, in front of you on, on sort of the numbers of, of, of things that were produced all by hand. Yeah, it, it, you know, back at the height of World War II, the, the pyrotechnics division here at Crane, they said on a monthly basis was producing well over 45,000 new and, and reworked flares. Uh, they assembled uh, well over 1,000 100-pound bombs during World War uh, II. A million plus rockets of various types were loaded by crane personnel between 1943 and 1945, and as you stated, all that done by hand. That's amazing, isn't it? It That's is. It's incredible. So rolling forward now from that extreme amount of productivity, all done by hand by people bussing in, as you talked about, uh, on the weekends and just, just, just standing up. Uh, really sort of the key to this technical evolution, you can think back to in 1947, a quality evaluation lab was stood up. And the idea there was really to ensure safety in storing and handling post-war munitions and ordnance. But it was also, as I said, a kind of a key foundational platform to really take this organization and think about it more technically. And I know, Ben, you did some information on that, or it developed some information on that, especially around some of the work done by Gene DeVault, the engineer in charge at the time, and how that was stood up. And love to have you share a little bit and speak into that topic, if you would, please. <laughs> Yeah, boy, I'd like to talk to it just off the top of my head because I've read this several times and probably could, but I'd, I'll do a disservice to it unless I just read it, Sandy. That's fair. So if that's all right, I right. would just like to read it. And, and the book you're reading from is, is which again, Ben? Because I know it's it's available at the Indiana Historical Society as well, and it's available for purchase in areas too. Yeah, it's called A Good Neighbor, The First 50 Years of Crane, 1941 to 1991. And uh, in this book, um, it, it references, it says, uh, by, the, by the mid-1950s, a handful of engineers were employed in quality, quality evaluation at Crane. Among these early engineers were Gene DeVault and Vernon Yeager, who, along with employment division manager Clint Robinson, began recruiting promising young engineers and science majors to work at Crane. These early engineers, and especially DeVault, who was head of the Quality Evaluation Laboratory, had not so much specific plans as they did a grand vision of Crane as a center for weapons engineering and evaluation. While DeVault and a few other civilian employees were the catalysts for transforming Crane over the years, it should be noted that certain commanding officers took particular interest in promoting Crane as a technological center during their tours of duty. Among these men were Captain Benjamin Lubelski in the late 1950s and Captain uh, Edgar Pettibone in the mid-1960s. It was, in fact, during Lubelski's tour that a fortuitous event allowed the realization of the division of DeVault and the others. In 1958, the Navy's Special Projects Office decided to ask crane engineers to work on the Polaris submarine-launched missile. The initial Polaris work dealt with conventional explosive components, such as the explosive boats, bolts that were involved in stage separation. These explosive experts at Crane were thought to be people who could handle the assignment. Work with Polaris explosive components opened opportunities for Crane engineers to work with specialized 
batteries utilized in the missile and electronics components employed in all Polaris subsystems. Especially important among the latter were semiconductors used in the missile's fire control, navigation, and guidance systems, in addition to stimulating work on batteries and semiconductors at Crane. The Polaris work led to center engineers being asked by Commander Wayne E. Meyer to help solve radar guidance problems with the Terrier Sea-to-Air missile. Solving the Terrier problems involved crane engineers in various types of microwave technology germane to their missile's problems. The Polaris, its successors the Poseidon and Trident, and the Terrier, with its successor combat system, Aegis, became the technology drivers at Crane. Soon the center's engineers were involved in ever-widening types and increasing varieties of high technology support tasks. Crane quickly became known as a can-do place. Wow, wow. So, you know, so here's Gene DeVault who really felt Crane shouldn't just be relying on passing ammunition and, and, and pyrotechnics during wartime, but needed to evolve technically. And, and, and so that's, that's why he's rightfully called Crane's technical godfather. Um, what, what a great title. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's also worthy to note Clint Crane places emphasis on, on science and engineering professional development, and that continues today in the 1920, or 2021, I almost said 1921, but anyway, in 2021, we still focus very much on, on workforce development, and it, it, it really, you mentioned a lot of different technical categories, Ben, that it marks our transformation into. We can trace our roots into radar, semiconductors, uh, just a lot of different technical areas back to this this period in the 50s. And, and you know, it's interesting to note that in, in, by the mid-50s, Crane had, from its beginning, by the mid-50s, three times more scientists and engineers and really focused a lot on ordnance, pyrotechnic technology, and, and just a lot, of, a lot of science and research. So, you know, what's interesting about this is from that then grew later towards the end, in the 56 to 58 period, Crane stood up three ordnance technical departments, right? Yes. Yeah, the pyrotechnic research and development uh, was stood up to improve pyrotechnic production methods through design and research, solving Navy pyro problems across the surface, undersea, and the air domains. Then the ammunition loading production engineering center, where production engineering across the uh, naval ammunition depots and the Bureau of Ordnance contributed to Crane's production engineering and acquisition engineering capabilities across the technology areas. Inspection department was the third responsible for all quality control functions. Yeah, so those three, those three ordnance technical departments stood up and, and really continued to build on this. You had this sort of second generation of leadership, uh, then it kind of assumed working with command to really grow these departments and become a foundation for the future, the future that we experience here today at NSWC Crane. And, you know, really by the late 50s, these departments were growing and, and evolving in, in capability and tasking. So, yeah, you know, kind of, you know Sandy, that sets the stage, you know, really for, you know, some of our follow-on discussions, I yes. think, too. The, the roots of, of even today's current organizational construct and where we find ourselves, you can find how it traces back yeah. uh, from generation to generation. And, uh, you know, we're, you know, I'm a third-generation employee up here at, uh, at Crane, and, uh, uh, we, you know, I've known fourth generation employees as well, and, and you can even trace back with some of those employees. Uh, uh, I, I think uh, going to have fifth generation, there may be some fifth generation out there wow. as well, but yeah. uh, we're soon to going to enter up into fifth and sixth generation employees with, uh, with new, new hires that will come on in the, in the next decade or so. That's super. I look forward to chatting a little more about that in a future podcast as we continue to roll on this series. So let's recap what we talked about here in this first score. Uh, we talked about, of course, 
Naval Ammunition Depot Burn City stood up December 1st, 1941, so nearly 80 years ago. Name changed to Naval Ammunition Depot Crane soon thereafter. Um, and then in the first 20 years, of course, played a huge role in producing and passing ammunition, of course, during World War II, and we didn't mention it, but certainly Clint Crane played a key role during the Korean War as well. And then that, that leadership piece we talked about as well. Yeah, Gene DeVault, Captain Harnley, and others determined that there was a need to take on a more technical role, really set the stage for, uh, for Crane's movement into the, the becoming really a technology force for uh, support to the Navy and the Department of Defense. Yeah, Ben, anything further to add on that first score for us? Hey, thanks, Sandy. You know, it was great. Uh, you know, you made a comment at the very beginning, you know, some personal uh, interest in it. Well, I wasn't here. Right. 41 to 61, but boy, I really enjoyed uh, working this with you and learning a little bit more about the history of Crane. And, and I'm thankful for those that uh, have taken the time to put this history together for us and, and glad to be able to share a little bit with, uh, with our viewers and listeners today. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Ben. Hey, that's a wrap on this inaugural podcast in honor of Crane's 80th anniversary. Our special thanks to our broadcast engineer, Seth Tackett, for his help with both recording and post-production. Be sure to tune in next time. We're going to discuss Crane's second score in our next podcast from 1961 to 81. For Ben Harkness, I'm Sandy Zare. Thanks for listening.